Wallace Hamilton, the pastor of a generation ago who pastored for over 30 years at Pasadena Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida, once said, when I get too old to preach, just give me a corner in the church where I can talk to people, not in crowds, but one by one as persons. For I have learned some things which I once believed, but now I know. Carl Sandburg, a renowned poet, biographer, folk singer, and lecturer, wrote a vignette early in his days of writing how he was going back and forth across the country on the railroad, and once I saw a young fireman, he said, in overalls, take a seat and slouch down easy and comfortable. After a while, a brakeman in a blue uniform came along, planted himself alongside the fireman. They didn't say anything. The two of them didn't even look at each other. The brakeman, looking straight ahead, was saying, well, what do you know today? And kept looking straight ahead till suddenly he turned and stared the fireman in the face, adding, for sure. I thought it was a keen and intelligent question. What do you know today? For sure. I remember the answer. It came slow and honest. The fireman made it plain what he knew that day for sure. And he said, not a darn thing. Only he said it a little more crudely than that. If you ask me now, what do I know for sure? My answer most of the time is not enough. If I knew more, I wouldn't still be rooting for the Redskins. I gave my life to Christ in faith almost 60 years ago. And I must tell you that the tracks of my life have gone up steep mountains and down in some dark and lonesome valleys. I know today for sure that nothing has ever separated me from the love of God known in Christ. Not sin, not failure, not cynicism, not even success. Let me share with you what I know for sure. I know for sure that life is not a problem to be solved. It is a challenge to be lived. Most often we want God to help us avoid the difficult or take us around the problems rather than seeing us through them and with his help even changing them. Historically, God has always worked with people and through people to get things done in his world. It is the way of God to, hum to use human beings to accomplish his purposes. He could bypass humans. He could get his work done without our participation. But he rarely does, if ever. God takes his people into partnership with him. When the great flood was coming and God wanted to spare a few people who were righteous, he called Noah and said, build me an ark. When God wanted to establish and train a special branch of the human family, he said to Abraham, get out of your own country and go to a land that I will show you. 
When God wanted to slay people out of Egypt, he stopped Moses by a burning bush on a mountain path and said, go down and lead my people out. When God wanted to construct a temple in Jerusalem, he spoke to Solomon saying, build me a house. When God went, wanted at Damascus to bring aid to the sin-stricken Saul of Tarsus, he summoned Ananias saying, arise and go to the street called Straight. So the record reads, so the story goes. It's the record of God calling human beings into partnership with him, involving them in what he was about to do in his world, assigning them their roles to play in the mighty drama of the working power. Note these action words, all of them verbs. Bring what you have, he said. Get out, prepare, go down, build, speak, arrive, write. To each of these persons, that's what God was saying. Bring what you have, do what you can where you are, and together we will do something for this world. And hear this. When God wanted to get his son, our Savior, into the world, even then, and especially then, he spoke to a human being, to a woman named Mary, and he said, you shall bear a son, call his name Jesus. But you say, isn't much I can do. There isn't much that I can bring. My talents are small, my resources are few, and yet when you give, what you give is put together with what God gives, miracles happen. In the old days of vaudeville, every show invariably included a magic act. Dressed fit to kill with cages and boxes and saws and wands and scarves, the magician with a few extra hats on his head would lurch to the center of the stage where after putting down all of his gear, he would start to warm up the audience with jokes deserving of respect only because they were as old as he was. And then the magician would suddenly point saying, would the gentleman sitting at the end of that row please come up? And you would chuckle again looking around to see whom he had gotten this time. No, no, the gentleman looking around, you, would you come up here please? And if you weren't a natural comic or a show-off, you'd be embarrassed, maybe even angry and legitimately so. You had paid to be a spectator, and now this man was calling you up on the stage to be a part of his act. Admittedly, it's a crude analogy, but perhaps a helpful one, for God's call often seems to come to people playing essentially a spectator role. And that's good news, really. You know why? Because it means that there is a higher voice beckoning us even in the midst of our day-to-day lives, in the run of the mill, everyday life of people like you and me who are consumed with nets and boats and jobs and mortgages, dirty diapers and dusty floors, ailing economies and aging parents. Jesus comes calling summoning us to lift our eyes to the stars and realize we have not simply been left to our own devices in the universe. We are not alone. We have been called. 
called by name, given a higher vocation, a mission beyond what we might be able to see right now in the nitty-gritty of life. True, we may not be kings, we're not rulers, we're not celebrities, but Jesus is calling us, commoners that we are, to consider how we might serve the kingdom of God that is at hand. Methodist Bishop William Willimon, who was once chaplain at Duke University, tells about being invited to a Duke fraternity one evening to give a talk. It seems that the university required them to give a certain number of programs each year in order to give the fraternity some semblance of respectability, and his assigned topic was character and college. Now, Willimon says he couldn't believe that they were dumb enough to invite a guy like him to come and talk to them about character. So he went to the fraternity house, he knocked on the door, the door opened, and he was greeted by a young boy, all of about eight or nine years old. What's this kid doing here at this time of night, he thought. Surely there are rules about young children being in the dorms this late at night. They're waiting for you in the common room, said the lad. Follow me, I'll show you where it is. They wound their way to the back, to the common room, and the fraternity brothers gathered glumly, and they awaited his presentation. As he began his remarks, the little boy climbed up onto the lap of one of the fraternity brothers and shortly fell asleep in his arms. Willimon hammered away at the college kids pretty well for moral failures in their generation for being so self-centered. And hour and a half, or half an hour later, when he finally finished his task, he asked if there were any questions, and there was dead silence. So he thanked them for the honor and began to prepare to leave. As he was making his way out, he noticed the fraternity brother who had held the little boy standing by the front door lighting up a cigarette. And he overheard the boy say, the fraternity brother, say to the little boy, you go on and get ready for bed. I'll come up, tuck you in, and read your story. Intrigued, Willimon went over to the fraternity brother and said, let me ask you a question. Who's the kid? And the young college student said, oh, that's Daryl. Our fraternity is part of the Durham Big Brother program. We met Daryl that way. His mom is on crack and having a tough time. Sometimes it gets so bad that she can't take care of him. So we told Daryl to call us whenever he needs us. We go over, pick him up. He stays with us until it's okay to go home. We take him to school. We buy his clothes, his books, and stuff. Astounded, Willimon said, that's amazing. I take back all the stuff I said about you people being bad and irresponsible. And here's what the fraternity brother said to Willimon. I'll tell you what's amazing. As he took another drag of a cigarette, he said, what's amazing is that God would pick a guy like me to do something that good for somebody else. Yeah. Sometimes God picks the most unlikely people to do his will. There's just no telling whom Jesus will call. I know that. 
for sure. Life is not a problem to be solved. It's a challenge to be lived in partnership with God, not just as pupils, but as participants, not just receivers, but as givers, workers together with God in his divine plan. You see, the good news is that the heart of life is caring. And as a Christian, you are purely and simply chosen to care. To be a channel through which God's caring comes alive to help bring about God's purpose for the world. Peace for all people. There's nothing you can do about this being chosen except ignore it. There's nothing that can be done about it. You're chosen. That's all there is to it. You didn't do the choosing. God chooses you for the most impossible task in the world. I'm sorry. That's it. It's the word of the Lord. Can we say thank you? Paul reminds us that we have been children long enough. It's time we grew up and matured. We need to see things as they are, not as we wish they were. We have to come to terms with our strengths, our weaknesses, our limitations. We have to recognize how richly we have received, and now it's time for us to generously give back, doing the best we can with what we have where we are. There come those times when, in all honesty, we must acknowledge that we don't have a problem. We are a problem. It's me. It's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Oscar Wilde said many significant things in the course of his troubled life. I suspect that he never gave us a truer utterance than this, what he wrote in Reading Jail. He said the greatest day of a man's life may well be that on which he falls on his knees, beats on his breast, and tells all of his sins to God. I know that for sure. I know that. Lovett Weems tells a story of a priest in London named John. Father John felt called to work with the city's poor. However, he was never assigned to a poor parish. So finally, he decided to withdraw from his priestly duties and take work as a street sweeper in London. Each day, he went out with the street sweepers, knowing that he was working hard. He worked beside them, with them, never knowing that he was a priest. And one of the most popular street sweepers became ill. After a short illness, he died. The other street sweepers were shocked. They had no idea that the man was that sick. If only we had known, they said, maybe we could have done something. We might have been able to, to help him. Now we'll never be able to do anything for him. Father John suggested, why don't we give him a good funeral? And the street sweepers all replied that they would never know how to give someone a funeral. How would they even begin? John told them that he would help them plan a funeral for the street sweeper. He revealed to them that he was a Catholic priest, and together they planned a funeral. On Saturday, hundreds of street sweepers filled the Catholic church, and Father John came out in all of his robes and regalia and led a beautiful funeral. And toward the end of the funeral, 
One befuddled and confused street sweeper stood up toward the front of the congregation, turned around and faced his fellow street sweepers and said in amazement, Are there other priests among us? A profound question for the church. Are there other priests among us? Of course there is. We are all priests. I have been privileged to visit Scotland, the homeland of my ancestors, eight times. In 1959, when I was a seminary student, a church history professor introduced me to the first, for the first time to a little island off the coast of West Scotland called Iona and to a man named George MacLeod. He told us about MacLeod in class. He said that MacLeod had pastored in the slums of Glasgow. He too wanted to help the poor. During the 50s, he discovered that St. Columba had started a, a religious group on Iona, a little island off the west coast. And so MacLeod decided that he would go over with a group of people and rebuild and reestablish that Christian community where people could come. They could take refuge from their mission for a short time, renew their spirit, look for God in the thin places where he breaks through. And McLeod would often go, you have to ride a ferry over to Iona and to the little Isle of Mull and then another ferry over to Scotland and McLeod would often go to Scotland and England and he would come back with news and he would often preach to the people on Iona. And so they met at the crossroads. When I was there at Iona, the dean of the cathedral took us on a little walking tour. Iona is only about three miles long and a mile wide. There are only two roads. Very little of it paid. Most of it is dirt road. And they intersect at one point called the crossroads. And when McLeod would come back or anyone had been off the island and come back, people would gather at the crossroads to hear the news. And McLeod would share the news, but he would often preach a sermon. And in 1959, my church history professor read a little excerpt from a sermon that George McLeod had preached. I didn't know at the time how profound that would become in my life, but it became the basis of my theology. It became the basis of my ministry and my mission in the world. And I stood there the same place that George McLeod preached these words the first time and heard them read 40 years later. McLeod said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering, he said, a claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, on the crossroads, so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, as the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble because that's where he died. And that's what he died about. And that's where churches should be. 
and what churches should be about. What do you know for sure? I know that for sure. May we pray. God of life, through all the circling years, we trust in you. In all the past, through all our hopes and fears, your hand we see. Thank you, Father, for your guidance, for purpose and power in the present, and for triumphant hope in the future. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.